Turn in your Bible this morning to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would love to give you one. We've got Bibles provided at the center of each aisle. Somebody would be happy to pass one down to you. Take it with you. If you don't own a copy, we'd love for you to have it. We'd love to talk to you about anything that you might read there. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, one thing that might be helpful to you to know is that the way that we decide what we're going to talk about in this section of our services um, is, is we pick a book of the Bible and we just go through it verse by verse and we take what comes next. We've been in John since the beginning of this year and what comes next for us this morning, the next section is John chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. And it's a section that's all about hatred. There's a strong connection between love and hate. We talk about love-hate relationships. You know, somebody that you just can't feel neutral about. That you sort of flip back and forth between intense, passionate affection for them or resentment towards them. That's not exactly what I have in mind. Brain scientists, I'm not one, so I can't confirm their findings. And these were British brain scientists, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Apparently some British brain scientists of a report that I read this week have mapped emotions of love and hate to the same brain chemistry, the same section of the brain. They're both intense passions. They're similar in that way. Still not what I'm most interested in, though. Here's the connection between love and hate that I think helps us get ready for what we're going to hear this morning. Have you ever thought about the fact that hate and love feed off of each other? They're passions that often need each other to exist. It's especially true about hate. Hate is what happens. It's what comes from love's colliding. When two competing loves meet, hate is what you get. Hate is what you feel when something you love deeply is threatened. Hate is such an intense emotion that it doesn't just creep up into you. Something has to be on the line for hate to make sense. I think that's why Jesus can turn so naturally from a three-chapter sequence in John that's all about love to a section here without any transition, without any warning, that's all about hate. Jesus has talked about his love for his own. A love that drove him from the glory he had with his father. Where he sat as the creator of the world. Into the world that he made. The world that had rejected him. To win them back and bring them home. He's talked about that sort of love. He's talked about their love for each other. That the way Jesus has loved them should affect how they treat one another, how they feel towards one another, how they serve one another. They're to be a community of love. He's talked about their love for him. If you love me, he said, you'll keep my commandments. And now, with no transition at all, he goes from all of these layers of love to talking about hate. And he promises that hate will be normal for Christians. 
What's more, he seems to believe that understanding and getting ready for being hated by other people is the key to holding on to faith. Look at what he says in verse 16, or verse 1 of chapter 16. I've said all these things to you, all the things we're about to unpack together, all the things about the hatred of the world for those who are with Jesus. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's got to talk about hate if your faith is going to last. Look at verse 4, same thing. I've said these things to you, all the stuff about the hatred of the world, that when their hour comes, you may remember them that I told you, told them to you. I think what Jesus is getting at here, what he would say to you if he were here to speak to you himself this morning, is that for you to have life-shaping faith in Christ, to have the kind of faith in Christ that Jesus wants you to have, for you to have a faith that holds on, you have got to understand the hatred of the world. If you're not looking for the hatred of the world, And if you're not experiencing in some way the hatred of the world, that something is missing and your faith might not last. I want to unpack the passage we're going to look at this morning through two simple questions. What does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world? It's not exactly clear, especially to those of us who don't live in a place where active physical persecution is a real thing. What does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world? And then, what should we do as Christians living here where we do, where we do live? What should we do with the hatred of the world? As we experience it, what should be our response to it? Those are the two simple questions I want us to spend some time on this morning. I want to start by reading the passage, though. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from uh, verse 18 of John 15. I'm going to read all the way through verse 4 of chapter 16. This is the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world? That's the, that's the first question we need to answer. And to do that, we've got to stay in the world of this text. We've got to resist the urge that all of us probably come to this text with to, to take from it, plug directly into what we experience in our context and try to get something from it. First thing we've got to do is try to understand what Jesus means in his own world, in his time and place. To understand what he means by the hatred of the world, we need to know what the world means in John. It's a, a phrase or a term that John has used a lot. And he has a very specific way of using it. Um, for him, it's not about the, the breadth of the world, the bigness of it. It isn't about all the population of the world or all the diversity of the world. The world in John always represents an alternate kingdom. So there's the kingdom of God who made all things, who rules all things, who calls for obedience and allegiance in the people that he's made in his image. There's that kingdom. And then over here, for John, there's the world. It's everything that resists God's rule. It's everything that stands in opposition to his kingdom. It's, uh, it's, it's a world where allegiance is to something other than him. Still a kingdom, still a kingdom of love for something, but that something is always other than God. So you have submission to God over here. That's the, the goal. That's what Jesus came to, to stir up, to build a kingdom where God is what he's, what, what he's supposed to be for us. And then you have the world, which resists Christ and his claim to rule on behalf of his Father. So what does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world that Christians should expect? I want to say three things about this to answer the question. Just three simple observations about what's in these verses that help us get closer. Here's the first one. What does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world? First thing that we need to notice to answer that question is that Jesus insists the hatred of the world is focused on him. That Jesus is, the, Jesus is the reason for the world's hatred. Should be the reason for the experience of hatred that his followers have in their lives. He says this over and over. His claims, his work, his demands, they are the central issue. Verses 18 to 21, though, are the main place that he talks about this. Look at the way he sets it up. The world hates you, know that it hated me first. All right? Your, your experience of hatred is not primary. Mine is. You're with me, therefore they hate you. Same thing comes out again in verse 19. If you were of the world, if you belong with them, if you were, if you were uh, faithful to or subject to their king, its values, they would love you as its own. But you're not of the world. You were. I took you out of the world. I put you with me. And now the world hates you because you're with me instead of with them. It's about an identity, about allegiance. And Jesus is the key. What they hate is him, his claim to authority. You're with him, you get what he got. Verse 20 says the same thing. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Your experience won't be different than mine. You follow me, you get what I got. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But these things they'll do to you, not because of how great you are, not because you're some sort of lightning rod of controversy, not because you're the center of attention, but because of my name. So the hatred of the world that Jesus says should be normal for us is not first and foremost about us, it's about him. That's going to become really important later on. Why is Jesus hated? 
Jesus doesn't say it here. He, he leaves us to sort of draw from other things we've seen in John. It certainly doesn't help that, according to John 7, 7, Jesus testifies that the world's works are evil. That doesn't win him a lot of friends. He says there that the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. We've seen him opposed in John chapter 6 when he offered eternal life to people who wanted more out of this life. It seemed like those claims that you, that you have the, the power to free us from death are the, are the claims of a crazy person, of a megalomaniac. They're dangerous and the world hated them. The world wanted him to help the world get to what the world already wanted, which is more out of this life. He says, not here for that. I want to give you eternal life if you eat my flesh, drink my blood. And so the world rejects him. He claimed to be one with the Father. And his world, first century Judaism, hated that claim. Who are you to claim that you are one with the Father? To claim that before Abraham was, even Abraham that you were there, and that Abraham rejoiced to see your day. Those are the claims Jesus made. They hated that. He claimed the right to absolute allegiance. He claimed the power to give life to dead people. He claimed, and maybe this one hangs over all the other ones, as a reason for hatred then and now. He claimed that he was the way and the truth and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. He claimed to offer something you could not get anywhere else. These are the claims of a crazy person unless they're the claims of God made flesh. It's all about Jesus. There is no neutral place from which you hear him say things like this and just move on with your day. If you don't love him, or see him as a dangerous threat to what you love, then you aren't hearing him. It's one or the other. Jesus gets that. He tells his followers they should expect the same thing. If you're with me, people are going to hate you because of me. Here's the second thing. Jesus insists that the hatred of the world is rooted, this is really important, is rooted in misdirected love. I was getting at earlier. To, to understand hate, you really need to understand love. Hate comes from something loved being threatened. Jesus points us there. John has been pointing us there throughout the book. These are my words. These aren't his exact words, but I, I think this is the point he's making here and in other places. I think it's an important point that helps us understand the world and how to speak to the world, how to expect the world to see us. And the key in, in this passage is in verse 19. It begins there. He talks about the world and what the world would love, right? The world is a community of love, just like the church is supposed to be a community of love. They love their own. They love people who love what they love. They love the celebration of their values. If you were of the world, the world would love you. You're not of the world. You're with me. I challenge the world. I have a claim on the misdirected love of that world. And therefore, they hate me and all who are with me. The world is a community of love, but it's love focused on something else. And Jesus and his people are threats 
to what the world loves, and that's why they hate them. It's why Jesus says in in verse 2 of chapter 16 that his followers should be expected to be put out of the synagogue like a cancer cut out of a body. Here, you you can see for him, here the world was that first century Jewish context where Jesus was seen as a dangerous threat to the religious leaders who were setting the agenda for Israel's life at that time. They will cut you out like a cancer in the body that they love. They will put you out of the synagogue if you're with me. In its hatred of Jesus and his people, the world is not being arbitrary. It's not like some sort of hateful kid who burns a grasshopper under a magnifying glass just for the heck of it. This is hatred. What makes this hatred so powerful is that it's driven by the conviction that they're doing right, that they're serving in love a true and higher cause. Did you see that in verse 2 of chapter 16? The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. The reason their hatred is so powerful is that it's spawned by a love for something they think is higher, something they think is worth all of their life, all of their allegiance, that's, that's worth everything to them. In, the, in this case, we're talking about first century Jews who believe they were serving the God of Israel by killing the Christians. We're talking about Saul, who becomes Paul in the New Testament, in Acts. It's exactly what he was doing. Thinking that they're doing right. And, and friends, all through the history of the church, every time Christians have been persecuted in any sort of systematic way, It's never been just random, arbitrary persecution. It's driven by a deep devotion, a love for something threatened by Christianity. It was true in the Roman world, not just in in this first century Israel context, but in the Roman world when, when Christians were persecuted right after the period when Jesus was alive. Often they were persecuted because they were seen as haters of humanity as threats to the kind of civil society the Romans were trying so hard to build. They knew themselves They knew they mattered because their society had accomplished something they believed to be unique and beautiful in the way that it was organized. And they saw Christians who refused to worship at the imperial cult, who refused to give their full and total allegiance to the Roman emperor. They saw these Christians as a threat to what they loved, their society. They killed them not, not just for the heck of it. They killed them in service of something greater. You see the same thing in Anywhere Marxism has taken over the government of a country and Christianity has been stamped out and the former Soviet Union are in China today. Here is is an example of people thinking they're doing it despite religion, right? They have no religion. There is no God. They're explicitly atheistic, but they're doing it in the service of something they love, some sort of higher calling that they think they have. They do it in service of ideas that make them think that Christians will be dangerous to the kind of world that would be best for people. It's true in the Muslim world today. Everywhere in the Muslim world that Christianity is, is being stamped out or, or that the, where the leaders, the powers that be are trying to stamp out Christianity, it's driven by a conviction that this is what God wants, that this is what's best for society. Hatred of Jesus is rooted in misdirected love. And until we know that, we won't fully understand it or be ready to to receive it in all of its power. It's always people who think they're doing right. Here's the last thing I'll say. What does Jesus mean by the hatred of the world? What can we learn from this passage? 
This one's very much connected. Here's the third thing. Jesus implies that hatred of the world will be the normal experience of all Christians. I think in this text, Jesus implies that the hatred of the world he's talking about is not something exceptional to the first century world that Jesus lived in. It's not something reserved today for Christians living in the Muslim world or in some sort of communist regime. It's supposed to be the normal experience of Christians in some way, shape, or form. When you're living in the world where loves collide, hatred is a natural result. If you're not experiencing it in some way, shape, or form, it's because something is missing. Something in you is not colliding in the way that it should with the loves of the world. Christians should expect to be viewed as strange, to be excluded, to be killed even. And if your faith has never made you an outsider, you have reason to wonder why not. Christians in the West have been more insulated from the hatred in the world than most Christians throughout the history and throughout the rest of the world. Christians in the West, last several hundred years, have been more insulated from the hatred of the world than any Christians at any other time in the history of the church. But friends, even here, we don't, we don't need to go to Roman world in the early centuries of the church or communist world of 20 years ago or Muslim world of today. Even here in the West, friends, things are changing. And I don't think, I think it's paranoid to assume that we're going to be thrown into prison or losing anything significant because of our faith anytime soon. But the climate has changed. And in particular on some issues where Jesus claims allegiance. Particularly, for example, on issues of marriage and sexuality. Where Jesus claims allegiance. Where Jesus claims that he knows the way to flourishing. To joy to pleasing the God who established these things for our good. Where Jesus makes claims like that in the West, Jesus is hated more and more, and so will be those who are with him. I read a fascinating article this week that was a real eye-opener on the changing climate in our culture, on these issues in particular, just as an example, on issues of sexual identity and marriage. How fast things are changing in the public eye and how serious is the hatred for those who would resist. There was this article in the New York Times Magazine about Wellesley College. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's a fascinating article. I highly recommend it. Just for the interest in a sociological problem that this college is having as much as for anything we can take from it for this passage. So fantastic college from everything I know about it. One of the, one of, if not the most prestigious all-women's college in the United States Um, They have a long track record of educating and sending off women who've gone on to do amazing things in America and around the world. Uh, They started in an era, founded in an era when education was not available to women as a way to educate women. And then when co-education became the norm, when uh, colleges started admitting both men and women, emphasis for the college shifted to where the focus was then on 
helping women to combat the sexism that they experience in co-education settings, to, uh, to empower women and celebrate them in a way that they wouldn't be at other colleges, to help them challenge ideas about womanhood that society might impose upon them. What this article, uh, what this article traces is how over time this vision was very attractive to others who were challenging society's norms for what it means to be woman, including those who were challenging whether or not their physical womanhood was a fixed identity for them. That over time, transgendered persons started coming in greater numbers and disproportionate numbers to Wellesley College. And the whole magazine article is sort of teasing out the implications for a women's college of someone taking the the very values upon which the college justifies itself into a direction that undermines the unique identity of that college. It's a fascinating article. Highly recommend it. Those in the transgender community at Wellesley have begun to push for less woman-centric language overall, for removing female pronouns from the marketing materials of the website of the college's uh, where the college pitches itself uh, to potential students. Um, they've, they've argued that the college should ditch the language of sisterhood that has been so important to its identity. They speak of each other as a sisterhood of Wellesley College. One of the, the, the article begins with uh, one transgendered person, born female, on the way to becoming male, who ran for a diversity post in the student government. Uh, diversity post, uh, a post on the student government team that was meant to encourage people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds and places, you know, being actively involved at Wellesley. And there was protest to this because people are saying, of all the people to hold a diversity post, you're going to put a white man there. It's, it's deeply ironic. But here's what, uh, beyond the interesting sociological stuff in this article... Here's a, here's a quote from it. The angu- uh, from, from this perspective, of what is a college supposed to do if we want to affirm someone challenging society's norms when they start to challenge the unique identity of our college itself? It's a quote from the article. What's a woman's college to do? Trans students point out that they're doing exactly what these schools encourage. They're breaking gender barriers. They're fulfilling their deepest yearnings. They're forging ahead even when society tries to hold them back but yielding to their request to dilute the focus on women would undercut the identity of a women's college. You get the problem, right? Here's why I bring it up. They quote one student's response in the article. This is a Wellesley student, recent graduate, who was not okay with this push to ditch female pronouns, to ditch the language of sisterhood, who wanted to hold on to Wellesley's championing of women in society. Here's what this recent grad said. Sisterhood is why I chose to go to Wellesley. Said a physics major who graduated recently and asked not to be identified for fear she'd be denounced for her opinion. A woman's college is a place to celebrate being a woman surrounded by women. I felt empowered by that every day. You come here thinking that every single leadership position will be held by a woman, but it's no longer true. And if all that is no longer true, the intrinsic value of a women's college no longer holds. 
I don't know if you noticed it there. Here's what jumped out at me, a neon flashing signs. She was afraid she would be denounced for her opinion. She, would be, she was afraid she would be hated, that she would be put out of her version of the synagogue for her views about the sanctity of female leadership at Wellesley College. She couldn't put her name to her views. Later on in the article, another student was quoted for her change of view. She started where this unidentified student started, wanting to hold on to the the unique uh, female language and identity of the college, but had a change of view over time. And she says that her epiphany came as she realized, this is a quote, if we excluded trans students, we'd be fighting on the wrong team. We'd be on the wrong side of history. End quote. Friend, that's the climate. When a student at Wellesley can't champion the unique identity of women and their contributions to society, without being put out, then what can Christians expect to experience when they're honest about Jesus' claims to have the right to tell us how he's made us, how we will flourish best, what makes for a society and a home and a church that not only honors him but serves us? Hatred of the world in our context might look like hatred and marginalization for the view that Jesus has anything to say about things like gender and marriage. We might be labeled as dangerous. At the very least, it's a guarantee that we're going to be put on the wrong side of history. And so the second question we've got to get to for this one example and for any others that might come up in our experience is what do we do with the hatred of the world, how should we deal with it in a way that honors Jesus and stays true? I want to give you three more quick steps here. Three steps. Three things Jesus implies here that help us know how to live as outsiders in a world that hates Jesus. Here's the first one. Friends, we've got to be so careful that we are not more offensive than Jesus is. He's plenty offensive. The claims that he makes... To absolute allegiance are plenty of reasons to get mad at those of us who own those claims and, off and hold them out to other people. We don't need to make it worse by the way that we stand with him. Go back to that point. The first point that I made, Jesus' point over and over here, is that, is that the hatred of the world that he's talking about is a hatred that's centered on him. It's not about us. And unfortunately, a lot of the hatred that Christians have experienced from the world, especially in the West, has not been really about Jesus, but about the self-righteousness and the condescension of Christians who claim to be with him. What separates us from the world is never our goodness and the world's evil. Jesus' language alone in verse 19 points back to this fact. He says, yeah, you're not of the world, but the reason you're not of the world is not that you never were of the world, but I chose you out of the world. I took you from where you were, and I put you somewhere else. But you, by yourself, on your own, you're with them. 
There's nothing good in you that makes you any different from them. They are not failing some standard that you have met. And none of our being with Jesus will be true to him if we ever give off the impression that the problem with the world is that they're not more like us. That's to be more offensive than Jesus. That's not the hatred that he's talking about. And we've got to hold ourselves under a microscope here, friends, to make sure we don't go there. Yes, they may resent our view that they are not okay on their own. And so be it. They resented that in Jesus too. But when we go to the world, when we face up to their hatred, Jesus is our identity and we go only in through him. We have no unmediated relationship to the world. When we go to them, it is through Jesus as our king to whom we submit, whose standards matter more than ours, as our redeemer who has washed us and made us clean. And we go to them with a call to repent and serve their king, but also a call to believe in the redeemer who has come to offer them grace, the same grace that we have known. That's the first thing. We gotta be careful here that we're not more offensive than Jesus. But but because being with Jesus is clearly offensive in us, even if we're not jerks about it, we got to expect and embrace being outsiders in the world. That's the second thing. I mean, it's obvious from the point, but I wanted at least, from the text and the things that we've, that we've said together, but I want to at least throw it out there and make sure it's as clear as it can be. Friends, we got to expect that if we're really with him, if we're really identifying with him in the way that he wants us to, we are going to be rejected because of it in some way, shape, or form. Winsomeness and grace is critical in our attitude towards the world as we represent Jesus. That's, that's point one, right? We don't want to be more offensive than him. We want to be kind and full of grace and gentleness. But I've recently heard it said that winsomeness is a great servant but a horrible master. If what, we most, if what we're most concerned with is whether the world likes us, even likes the way that we present Jesus, then we won't be hated because we won't offer them anything different than what they already have. We don't want to so identify with the world that when someone looks at us, they see and love a reflection of themselves rather than the image of Jesus who calls them to himself and to repent and believe. I think we can have some problem immediately connecting with this text because we don't feel hated that often. We certainly aren't likely to lose our heads anytime soon. And... So we can ask, how do we identify what Jesus is talking about here in our context so that we aren't oblivious to its effects so that we, and so that we aren't caught off guard by it? How can we take what Jesus said here, put it in our context where we're not likely to face death and be sensitive to, to where the hatred is and not be caught off guard by it? There's a couple of questions that help with that, I think. Ask yourself this, what makes you likely to hide your identity with Jesus? Come on, we've all been there, Right? When you're talking to somebody maybe that you don't know that well, they're asking you questions about you know, who you are and what your background is. Where do you find yourself hesitant to identify with Jesus? Where does it come from? Are you afraid you'll feel foolish? That maybe they'll want to know why you think Jesus is who he says he is and that you won't be able to convince them? Is it that you don't want to seem different or out of touch? Oh, friends, there is such a powerful, powerful attraction to being part of something great, to being on the cutting edge, on the front end of something. 
And Jesus, identifying with him, has often knocked you off that wave. Do you fear rejection? That you likely won't be liked or included? Friends, these are the things that Jesus has in mind here. Being with him has always meant being put out of some sort of synagogue. It's always meant being put out of something. Figure out where it is that you're less likely to talk to people about Jesus. Figure out why that is. And there you've got something about what Jesus means of the hatred of the world. Because you're probably not wrong in whatever it is you're afraid of. Probably that person would think you're foolish. Probably they would think you're far less cool than they would have otherwise. You're not wrong. There's the hatred of the world. That's where you've got to dig in. Here's, here's the second thing to look for, though. One reason being with him always means being put out is that in every culture there's some love or some object of devotion that Jesus and his claims confront. And love for that thing, service to that God, whatever it is, will mean hatred for Jesus and those who are with Jesus. And our God, our, I think in our culture, one of, if not, one of the, if not the main one, is the God of personal autonomy of the right to define for ourselves what makes for a good life. We resent by nature and instinct. We resent the idea that someone else has the authority to tell us what would be best. Go back to that same Wellesley article, one of the most interesting anecdotes in it. Uh, there's there's a, a, an old tradition that they have at Wellesley called hoop rolling. It, I'd never heard of it before from the pictures I saw in the article. It just looks like a kind of a rim of a bicycle or something and you try to see how far you can keep it going i don't know how it goes but it's a huge uh annual tradition that they have seniors roll this try to win it and uh recently it was won by a transgendered male so someone born female who had converted its identity to male and the article talks about how how on the website of the school the tradition for this hoop rolling contest is that whoever wins it back in the back in the fifties, whoever wins the hoop rolling contest will be the first one to get married. All right, that was the that was the tradition. Then in the nineteen eighties, it was whoever wins the hoop rolling tradition will be the first one to be named CEO of a company. And now on the website, whoever wins here, here's what they say: whoever wins will be the first to get happiness however defined by her. And this article's point was that that wasn't even enough for the person who won it. The God of this world is autonomy. And Jesus says to everyone seeking blessing, happiness, flourishing in this life, that he is the way the truth, and the life. He claims he made you, that he made you for a purpose, that he designed a way of being that is best for you and for others. Jesus is hated because he won't let you define what's best for you. It got him rejected then, it'll get you rejected now. Are you ready for that? Finally, We have got to confront the hatred of the world, not with fear, not with gloom, but with joy and good cheer. It's a good Christmas term, right? Good cheer. I like it. 
we should be cheerful in the face of the world. And here's why. I've only got time to say it, and I'll leave you to think about it. All Jesus' language in this passage is about him, us being identified with him, us getting what he got, right? And it's all negative in this passage. If you're with me, you'll get the same hatred, persecution, even death that I got. But friends, there is a glorious flip side to that reality. Those who are with Jesus get what Jesus got. You know what Jesus got? The glory that was his before the world was made in the presence of his Father. A glory that he now gives to his followers as their own. We are pleasing to the God that made us, not because we deserve it, but because we are with him. With him, we have an affirmation, an acceptance, an insider status that that even the, the best things in this world can't compete with. When we're with Jesus, we get what he got. That means the hatred of the world, but it means the love and acceptance of a father who will never leave us or forsake us, who will never allow us to fall off the wave of what's fashionable now, but who will stick with us. And if we're accepted by this God, what do we care for the hatred of the world? We can go to them with love because we don't care how they feel about us. We don't have to be gloomy that they've rejected us because we're accepted by God. And so we can offer that same acceptance to them. What do we care? It frees us from what normally comes with hatred, which is a kind of group insularity, a kind of solidarity where because they hate us, we have to hate them. We got to stick together, right? There's none of that in the way that Jesus interacts with the world. He came into the world he knew would hate him, that he knew would kill him. And he knew that he had glory waiting for him on the backside of all he had to do. And he offers that same thing as a bedrock of confidence to all of us who ever confront the hatred of the world. We have nothing to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? Father, it is one thing to say that we are good as long as we're with Jesus, and another thing to experience the sweet assurance that comes from that promise. We've talked about it. You've spoken clearly to us about it. We think we understand it, and now we need you to help us live in it. Prepare us, Father, to be with Jesus without fear and protect our hearts from loving the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. And give us, we pray, confidence that should be ours as your children in a world that you made and you have promised to redeem. Help us for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.